Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Matthew Epinette, Interim Director of the Center. This edition of the Bioethics Podcast features a presentation entitled New Ethical Challenges in Triage by David Sherman, a Boston-based critical care ICU nurse. The presentation is from our 2015 conference, Science, Research, and the Limits of Bioethics, and it has increased relevance now in 2020. One factor that's been prominent in the midst of the current coronavirus pandemic is the way in which it touches on multiple areas of bioethics. In this presentation, Mr. Sherman approaches the issue of triage, beginning with the phenomenon of mass casualty events, or MCEs. As I'm recording, there are hospitals in New York where COVID-19 infections seem to be reaching the status of mass casualty events which is to say the need for care is beginning to outstrip the resources available. This presentation, then, is highly relevant to the current moment. Mr. Sherman is, as you will hear, deeply interested in the topic of triage in times of scarcity. He is at times provocative as a way of provoking us to think hard about the possible worst-case scenarios. This is an interesting presentation that I hope will spur your thinking in the midst of all that's going on. Here is David Sherman on new ethical challenges in triage. My name is Dave Sherman, um, and uh, we'll talk today about new ethical challenges in, in mass casualty event triage. This is a topic that I'm very passionate about, and I'm passionate about it enough that I'm actually inside on a beautiful day like this. And I think that's, I, I've only been here today, but I think that nobody has yet recognized uh, that uh, everybody that's here is here when they could be outside. Um, Folks that are coming in, feel free to take a handout and a business card. Um, We're going to see that uh, the reason why I'm so passionate about this topic is because we're going to see that that mass casualty event triage is something that that takes us to the limits of our bioethics. This is a conference on science research and limits of bioethics. We're going to see how limited our bioethics are in ways that affect not just the healthcare system, but our entire civilization. My objectives today to briefly assess the state of research on existing civilian mass casualty event triage protocols, to evaluate the impact of calls for palliative care in civilian MCEs. And I view those calls as a bit of a problem, and I don't like presenting problems without solutions if I can can avoid it. And so, therefore, um, I'm going to be proposing some solutions to channel emerging policies from normal operation healthcare policies into mass casualty event triage planning. Start by defining our terms. A mass casualty event is one that involves, sitting where you are, can you see the screen? Um, Mass casualty event is one that involves such large numbers of victims or such severe or unique injuries that local medical resources cannot fully handle them. A subset of that is the catastrophic disaster in which most or all of the community's infrastructure is impacted. It's the relative rather than the total loss of, of the infrastructure that matters. Now, when the Institute of Medicine defined a catastrophic disaster in those terms, they turned mass casualty event uh, planning into a math problem, whether or not they wanted to. Mrs. Fibonacci says in this great um, book for, uh, for, for, for middle school kids, you know, you can think of almost everything as a math problem. Now, I don't want to scare away anybody who's not a math person. Mm-hmm. We're just going to be talking about simple arithmetic. We're always going to be talking about a fraction when we talk about solutions, there's always a numerator of patients and their acuity over a denominator of resources available to treat them. Three, three types of resources, staff, stuff, and space. It's going to be very important when we start to talk about solutions. 
possible solutions. Crisis standards of care started to be developed around 2007 or so by states in response to the threat of MCEs. And it was defined as a substantial change in usual healthcare operations and the level of care possible to deliver, made necessary by a pervasive or catastrophic disaster, usually prioritizing population health rather than individual outcomes. Now, that's a major shift from how we usually do business in clinical bioethics. Thank you. Typically, we talk about how individual patients are going to do. Now we have to start talking about population health. Um, I'm now going to figure out how to use this remote. Is this okay. Yay. And the middle one is the pointer. Middle one is the? The pointer. Okay. Yeah. Um, crisis standards of care must mean triage. And triage is defined as the separation of a large number of casualties into three groups. Those who, will, those who cannot be expected to survive even with treatment those who will recover without, and the highest priority group, those who will not survive without treatment. Now, the problem with triage is that it, it implicitly requires a predictive capability that I would argue we don't have. And I'm going to make that argument very briefly because it's in the literature anyway. But just to show, you, show it to you in stark terms, there is a triage system out there that's got a lot of good press in the last few years called the Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score, or SOFA. And it was studied by Christian et al. in 2009, who said, yeah, this is a good triage system to use. Well, like all triage systems, it color codes patients into severities. And this blue-black category here, these are supposed to be percentage signs here. I don't know why I didn't come out that way. It does on my map. Um, this blue-black category here is considered to be the expectant category. Now, expectant in a in situation mass casualty event does not mean you're expected to have a baby. It means you're expected to Say the word. Die. And therefore, in a mass casualty event situation, it would be appropriate, it's considered, to withdraw life-sustaining resources from that patient, the blue-black patient, in order to make in order to make resources available for somebody more viable. But of this blue-black category in this study, which was a retrospective tabletop exercise, nobody actually got hurt. A quarter of the patients that were expected to die and therefore would have had resources withdrawn from them lived. That's a very stark example. We could talk more about that during Q&A if you want. But I do want to get to um, what's new, which is that triage is not just an on-scene protocol. Triage is a trajectory. It is a trajectory with a bunch of different points. The first point of triage is intake triage. And that's where the patients in an MCE first meet the healthcare system. And that can happen in and of itself. That's two points right there. That can happen at the scene or it can happen on arrival at the hospital or the, or the alternative care site. There's also a stage called reverse triage that's been advocated in the literature. And the article that defined it is called Lifeboat Ethics, with a subtitle after that. And that really brings home the, the metaphor that makes, makes reverse triage very clear as to what it is. Reverse triage is the decision that a certain patient, a certain number of patients in an MCE are no longer viable and they need to be uh, discharged from the hospital early in order to make room for possibly more viable patients. At any of these points on the, tra on the trajectory, some patients are going to be excluded from the life-saving sector, and they are likely to die. They will, they, they will die by triage. Now, I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm saying this is something that's going to happen. And then the question is, how do we optimize the human dignity of excluded patients? What happens to the need, what, when the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one? What happens to the one? And I think this girl here from the Fukushima earthquake in 2011 has the right idea. 
Look what she's doing. She's cuddling this child, who I can't tell in this picture if, if the child is dead or alive. But she's practicing the rudiments of palliative care. She doesn't have the resources that we might have in a hospital, but she's trying. And so this is the rudiments of palliative care. And incidentally, Catholic Church teaching supports palliative care, even when the meds that we typically use might shorten life, as long as that is not the intent. Life support palliative triage. That's the next point on the, on the triage trajectory. Never talked about before. I made up the term. Let me set up the problem for you at this point on the trajectory sets up. How many people here are direct caregivers? Show of hands. One, two, three, uh, about five or so. And of you, how many of you take care of patients in either emergency room or ICU? One. Okay. Two. Okay. Um, you two people know this problem, but not necessarily in these terms. Let me set this up for you. The Institute of Medicine argues quite cogently that the classic example of a critical care resource is the ventilator. In, layman's, in medical lay terms, the breathing machine. Reason being, well, most fundamentally, its absence when it's needed is most likely to lead to death. And then there are other reasons as well. Now, on this side of the screen here, you see the control screen of a ventilator that it's a touch screen. And, you know, I usually, I, I you know, take care of patients on these ventilators all the time. But that's not what a ventilator looks like to me. To me, a ventilator is a jigsaw puzzle. And all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle have to fit together in order for the vent to work. And one of the things that has to be, one of the jigsaw puzzle pieces is synchrony. The patient and the ventilator have to be in sync with each other. When they are not, something develops called patient-ventilator asynchrony, otherwise known in slang terms as buck, the patient bucking the vent. And that's a problem because when we see vent bucking, we see uh, increased instances of lung injury, we see increased durations of ventilator time, and we see increased instances of death. Now, those are three options, th those are three outcomes that we don't want under normal circumstances, let alone in an MCE, where the issue is not just the patient's not doing so well, but we also have resource waste happening. So, what do you do to relieve bucking the vent? What do you do to relieve patient ventilator asynchrony? Well, typically we medicate patients. And we medicate patients to achieve what's called vent control. And that's sort of slang term, but it's, but it's also legitimate as well. And some of the meds that we use are actually morphine. Now, you who are direct caregivers, I'm using morphine as a cautious example here, and we can talk about why more in Q&A. But everything I'm going to say about morphine applies across the board to all the vent control drugs. What else do we know about morphine besides its use in vent control? What else does it do? It controls? Pain. Pain. And it's also used in palliative care. Classic example, the person, and some of you may have personal tragic experiences with this. People put on a morphine drip to make them comfortable because they're done with the idea of, of, of aggressive care to prolong their lives. They just want to be made comfortable. So it's clear. Some of the meds used in creating synchrony are the same as those being palliated. And then the and so clearly, during a mass casualty event response, palliative medical services will com directly compete with definitive or life-saving care for many of the same resources. So that sets up the question, who gets the meds? The life-supported or the palliated? palliated? Well, the ventilator document working group of the CDC and the Institute of Medicine both recommend that each group should get some care to which the Agency for Healthcare Research, Research and Quality, which is an arm of HHS, recommends that towards the goal of at the very least providing palliative care to all, treatment decisions will have to balance utilitarian notions against other ethical values with medical effectiveness as a key determinant. 
Now we're on our own, because that's where the literature stops. This report, by it's, I regret that the handout didn't actually uh, give you the bibliography. I, I wanted the bibliography there. This is a paper from uh, 2009, I believe. So now we're on our <coughs> now we're on our own. How do we distribute this resource? Whoops, going to let you in on a little secret. It's a little, it's a lot easier to be medically effective in palliative care than it is in life support care. And the reason for that has to do with concerns about side effects. So that would argue that the meds should be prioritized to the, to the palliative population in a surge. And I'll give you another argument for, for prioritizing the meds that way. It is the fact that over the last 25 or so years, what have we been doing to our denominator of, of resources available? It's been shrinking for societal economic reasons. As a society, we've made economic decisions to close hospitals. In Boston right now, which is where I'm from, three hospitals are in the process of closing right now. So this is still happening. So let's prioritize the meds to the palliative population. Think about the math. I'm going to show you the math. Again, it's very simple, but it's a big idea. When we give morphine to achieve vent control, the dose tends to be about two milligrams per dose. Sometimes four, sometimes one. Every couple of hours is needed. Every four hours is needed. Typically, it's two milligrams. When we give morphine to palliate patients, the literature defines palliative doses of morphine at low doses to be up to 59 milligrams per day. What that means is that if you palliate one patient for one day with low-dose morphine, you're taking out of the system 29 and a half vent control doses, which is about a day and a half to two days supply for one patient. You like that math? It's very, very difficult to accept when you put it in those terms. Okay? You can accept it, and, and you can accept it for the reason that I'm about to show you, which is, which is the alternative. Let's ask the question in a different way. Who gets the meds? Perhaps we should be prioritizing life support. I'm an ICU nurse. Where do you think my biases are? I love all the resources in the world to come to me. Just throw them at me. I'll take them. But I see real trouble ahead when we think about what to do about the palliated patients. I notice this talk is being recorded. I want the tape to keep on running while I say the following sentence. Although this is my bias, I oppose each of the policy options that would result from, that, from following that policy option. Because if the U.S. government recommendations that I've discussed um, are implemented, this means that we have to start thinking about euthanasia as palliation when the palliative meds run short. By the way, the palliative meds already run short under normal operations. I don't like euthanasia. The Catholic Church does not like euthanasia. Everybody knows that the Catholic Church doesn't like euthanasia, and I strongly agree with them on that. But if you think I'm being unnecessarily alarmist about that, think about New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, where the evidence is quite strong that doctors and nurses euthanized, killed, murdered, patients, not because they were necessarily critically ill, but simply because they couldn't be evacuated. You don't like euthanasia? I don't like euthanasia. I also don't like physician-assisted suicide. And as a policy, when, uh, as a policy for, uh, for, for MCEs, what this low-technology method would require would be the abundance of safes. But let's look at assisted suicide the way it's actually done in places like Oregon. Um, Let's look at the actual suicide machine of uh, Jack Kevorkian. What was the med that was used to actually kill the patients? Anybody know? Hmm? Mm -mm. 
Mm. Now, morphine just made them comfortable. The drug that actually stopped the heart was, was IV potassium chloride, which is a legitimate use, which is a medicine with a legitimate use in a hospital for life support for hypokalemia, for low potassium levels in the blood. What that means is IV potassium chloride is another dual-use med that can run short. If we're trying to palliate patients by letting them kill themselves by pressing a button, that medicine may be running short as well because it's being used for life support. Get ready for the ultimate palliator. Now, the gun is a little bit of a stretch, but it's not that much of a stretch. Because if you look at Sherry Fink's book about Memorial Hospital in New Orleans after Katrina, she describes a uh, situation which Dr. Thiel was trying to euthanize a patient, kill a patient. And he kept on giving him dose after dose after dose of morphine. He lost count of how much morphine he had given the patient. He knew he was up over 100 milligrams, which is a huge dose. Patient still didn't die, so he smothered him with a towel. Now, to me, that's ethically the same as though he had put a gun to the poor man's head and pulled the trigger. And it is murder, clear and simple. And what happens to our healthcare system? What happens to our civilization if we're going to start to accept murder as palliation when the palliative meds run short? Did I say something about the limits of bioethics? We're not. We're kind of beyond the limits of what we're used to dealing with in bioethics. This is beyond talking about our usual ethical principles of autonomy, um, which is which translated into bioethics is simply the right of patients to uh, to decide what medical treatments to accept and reject. Autonomy becomes a very nebulous concept in an MCE because uh, the patient that wants full treatment, when there aren't the resources available to to, uh, to give that treatment, isn't necessarily going to get it necessarily going to have their autonomy respected. Incidentally, Catholic Church teaching on end-of-life situations is not exactly what the public thinks. Very strongly supportive, according to the U.S. Conference of Bishops, um, very supportive of patients' autonomous decisions to limit life-sustaining treatment when the patient believes that the means are disproportionately burdensome or even impose excessive expense on the family or the community. I'm going to jump ahead one slide. Whoops. I'm going to jump ahead one slide here. How does that relate to the common good? That's another ethical principle. And it's very nebulous. Look at what the same author wrote in the same article. The members of the community should subordinate their particular good to the common good of the, of the community. And he also wrote, healthcare is a common good to be distributed to all the members of the society. Beneficence, another typical bioethical value. Um, beneficence is simply doing good for people. The question, well, I said doing good for people. I took that a little bit far. That's what we usually do. What about doing good for the population? Remember that de- that definition of crisis standards of care? Where we're looking to achieve population health. So the question becomes, to whom or to what are we doing beneficence? And for that matter, how do we even measure good? Are we looking to save the greatest, the, the, the largest number of lives possible? That's a measurable thing, and that's the mainstream goal. But other authors argue that the, that the standard should be the greatest good for the greatest number. How in the heck do you measure that? Very nebulous concept. Justice is not so much nebulous as it is um, as it is multifaceted. Justice involve justice has a procedural aspect involving ensuring a voice for those affected by triage decisions, meaningful public engagement, transparency, accountability, and in the periphery of our vast fifty states, there have been some public engagement projects, not very many. Harris County in Texas, which includes Houston, 
had a very good one on pandemic flu resource allocation. Unfortunately, that is not the disaster that they are suffering right now. They're suffering from flooding. I'm going to give you a bad example of um, public engagement in MCE triage. It comes from my home state. I'm ashamed of this. In Massachusetts, um, the State Department of Public Health put together some medical lay people, got them together for a few meetings and said, okay, what are your values in terms of uh, resource allocation, pandemic flu? My problem with this is that the number of people that they involved in this was 15. I did not say 50, I said 15. We have a state population of about 6 million or so, and how these people were chosen or what their backgrounds were in our ethnically diverse state was not reported. Public exclusion has been more the norm. In fact, ironically, there was a CDC working group paper in 2009 that called for the active involvement of the community in the planning and triage process. This was approved unanimously before the public comment period began. Public exclusion. Life support palliative triage is a question that has not only been not answered, but it hasn't even been asked. And by failing to have a public enterprise of disciplined reflection on moral intuitions and moral choices, I would argue that we are failing at the definition of ethics. There's one other ethical principle that may help us get out of this a little bit, and it will be familiar to many of you, the principle of double effect, which is historically a Catholic religious principle that essentially says that um, a, an action with a good effect and a bad effect is acceptable to be performed under certain circumstances, and the certain circumstances vary from version to version. It's regrettable that there happens to be a, a, a scandal right now in the St. Paul, Minneapolis diocese, but I don't think it's going to change anything that I'm going to quote from their Commission on Biomedical Ethics, which is that it's acceptable to perform that act with a good and a bad action when, among other things, no other means of achieving those beneficial acts are acceptable, or, 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 except for this act, are available. And the foreseen beneficial effects have to be equal to or greater than the foreseen harmful effects. So let's, let's wonder, can we, is there some other way of saving the lives that we want to save in a mass casualty event without having a large-scale death-by-triage situation invoked by CSC? And my answer to that is, drum roll please, maybe. Maybe is my answer. I'm going to give you a few examples. I see ways to ethically decrease our numerator of patients and increase our resources. And one example of an ethical way to decrease our numerator comes from the following slogan, hand hygiene saves lives. Now, I don't mean to denigrate it as a slogan. I simply mean it's a pithy, true statement that you hear very often. And all it means is hand hygiene helps prevent the spread of infections. Now, I started looking at MCEs within about, ooh, okay, within about uh, uh, six years or so ago, and there's been a bit of a cultural shift. Now you see hand sanitizers in schools banks, shopping malls, but there's one place that I've never seen them installed, and that is in this MCE that's waiting to happen. I don't mean the subway crash. I mean all these noses and hands that are all in the same place. How much would it take to put a hand sanitizer dispenser at the fare box of every mass transit vehicle? And I happen to have the answer. I ran the, I ran the numbers on Boston's MBTA system. It's 1.2 cents per ride at a time that the fare was $2.00. Ethically very juicy to install these hand sanitizers and have their voluntary use. A little bit more dicey if you talk about mandatory use. Um, there's a lot of healthcare policy literature these days, rightfully talking about um, 
uh, advantaging vulnerable populations. I talked about hand sanitizers in malls and, and, and malls and banks. A lot of money running around those places. Not a lot of money running around here necessarily. A lot of these folks are riding the subway or the L because they don't have the money for a car, or worse, they don't have the money for a place to sleep, and they stay on these things 24-7. Shouldn't we be advantaging this vulnerable population just for the sake of normal operations? And how could that help us in, 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 in a biohazardous MCE? Now, this is biohazard-specific. I have a couple of uh, possible opportunities for all hazards. And they involve, whoops, one of them involves this guy. Now, if you're going to wonder why I think that pets are not people, too, well, you might wonder about that. But if you're going to wonder why I'm talking about that in an MCE lecture, mm -hmm. I'll tell you. I think it's absolutely appalling that in three weeks, in a week after 9-11, there was a three-block radius of high-rise buildings with vulnerable people trapped in them without access to food, medicine, electricity, or water. And they were there for up to a week while animal rescue groups were able to get their volunteers in to rescue the animals within a day. Doesn't it make sense? I'm not saying we should train everybody in the ASPCA to take care of people, but doesn't it make sense to expand our denominator by training more people to take care of human rescue? During Q&A, I'd love it if somebody would ask me about animals in Hurricane Katrina. There's something very poignant that happened there. But I want to talk about one more opportunity for all hazards, and it involves advanced directives. Only 36% of American adults have advanced directives, something which, by the way, the Catholic Church is also uh, supportive of, as long as they do not conflict with other Catholic Church teachings. If we were to increase the number of voluntary advanced directives, I stress voluntary, if we were to increase the number of adults who would, who would write out advanced directives, no matter what they say, the odds are we would probably bring out a large number of people from the, uh, from the woodwork who would refuse life-sustaining treatment. And I would argue that those folks who are saying, we're going to refuse life-sustaining treatment in normal operations, they can be ethically excluded from uh, life-sustaining treatment in an MCE as well. These, anybody who does that, by the way, can put their wishes on the cloud or on their smartphone. I don't like the cloud because Russia just announced they're going to increase our, their arsenal of ICBMs by 40, which means that a mushroom cloud might, might wipe out the cloud. But in Massachusetts, we used to have a system. I'm going to be done in a minute. Um, in Massachusetts, we used to have a system where people who made the option of limiting life-sustaining treatment could wear a bracelet to that effect. And triage officers and paramedics could see that. We're phasing that system out for some stupid reason. I don't know why. Um, and I think it's something that we should rephase in and have nationwide so that paramedics and triage officers can see them under normal operations and in NCE. By seeing triage through its trajectory, by planning and allocating in advance for the different points of the trajectory, what our resources are going to be, and in public, with public, ex with public engagement, by clarifying our ethics in advance, and by merging current trends like hand hygiene and most forms, medical orders on life-sustaining treatment, which do not reproduce very well on a PowerPoint, we may be able to delay the day that we have to make fateful decisions about crisis standards of care and life support palliative triage, and we may be able to give our bioethical oughts time to catch up with what really is, we may be able to keep calm and Boston strong. That was David Sherman on New Ethical Challenges in Triage from the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity's 2015 conference, Science, Research, and the Limits of Bioethics. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2020, all rights reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center 
at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. My name is Matthew Epinet. I'm the Interim Director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.